Please be seated. For those of you visiting with us, I would actually like you to come up and tell us a little bit about yourself right now. I don't know where you're from, but uh, related to that announcement, uh, the the elders came up to me uh, during the service and said, Joe forgot an important announcement. We're looking for some volunteers to slash the hunter's tires during the meal next week so they can't leave. So if you want to talk to Joe Gerber about that afterwards. Um, all that levity aside, I, I didn't know till this morning that the hunters were leaving. So, um, yeah, that was uh, looking forward to, to working side by side till June. And it looks like I'll be here till the last Sunday in June, So, uh, which is really wonderful. It's exactly as it, as it was planned on the whiteboard. So that doesn't happen very often. We'll see as the Lord leads. But, uh, but Phil, especially, I've been able to have regular contact with you. And um, just, to, just if I can take a moment to express my thanks for that and how enriching that's been. And I look forward to uh, finding ways to uh, enjoy your fellowship and, and work alongside you in the future. So, so thank you. Thank you very much. Let's pray, and then we'll look at uh, another passage from um, Samuel. You'll notice we've jumped into the second book of Samuel today. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies, and I ask you, please, Lord Jesus, to um, show us who you are, what you and the Father and the Spirit have done, what it means to us for our hope and salvation, and how we must now live, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, we've skipped quite a a chunk of the story of David. Uh, At this point, Saul is dead, and David has no immediate rival. But until this passage, Israel's still divided between Judah and the other tribes um, who aren't quite sure they want David until this uh, scene that we're going to look at now. And um, we'll also see that this is the beginning of of a sea change in the telling of David's story, which will end um, differently than it began. So let's uh, take uh, a listen to God's word. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the leaders of Israel had come to David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king and reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. 
David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stone masons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal Perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim, which means the Lord breaks out. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Amen. Well, I want you to think for a moment about what you need, um, what's most burdensome on your heart, what you're most anxious about. I hope you can think of things that are outside of you, that are concrete, practical, things about work, about place to live, about the security of, of um, your health, very specific things, but also think about relationships and think about um, desires and dreams that you have. And then finally, think about your own heart and what you think your own heart needs. Now, if you can imagine some of those things, and I want you to know, of course, I have my list too, I'll make a confession about my own walk with God. And that is this. When I think of that list of things I have, which I hope you've made, I almost always believe I need a shepherd when I really need a king, or I need a king when I really need a shepherd. And then as a pastor, it gets even worse because I have often thought that my people need a king when they need a shepherd or they need a shepherd when they need a king. Which is why our Lord Jesus is both. And he's always both. He's always both whenever he's in your life. Because a broken world full of broken 
people needs a king who's a shepherd and a shepherd who's a king. That's what I want you to take away. You are a broken person in a broken world and you need a king who is a shepherd and a shepherd who is a king. And there is only one of those. Our Savior, Jesus. So we're going to look at uh, the unorthodox four-point sermon. Uh, The ideal of a shepherd king, David the shepherd king, the true shepherd king, and then we're going to take some lessons about how to live in such a kingdom. So let's take a look at this passage in this opening, its opening phrases and really all throughout. It lays out what was known uh, commonly in the ancient Near East that, that kings and shepherds were, were in some way uh, connected. This is a common kind of, of imagery, although it's counterintuitive. It was common in the ancient world and uh, certainly it's part of what the church sees in Christ their king. So what do we learn about the ideal of a shepherd king? And the very first thing is perhaps the most obvious The shepherd king is one of us. You are what they say, um, our bone and our flesh. That's evocative of language from uh, the book of Genesis when Adam first sees Eve, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You're one of us. The shepherd king is like us. And as we'll see in a moment towards towards the, the last part of this sermon, of course, that's true of Christ. But but what's re- remarkable about how embedded this is in, human, in the human condition in, is that it's still what we look for in our leaders. We want someone who understands us. We want someone who knows. You're looking, I think, for a governor here, right? Do I see those signs? What if I ran for governor? What if I lived here for two years and ran for governor? No one's voting for me. Well, I got one vote. Because I don't know this place, and that's what we want. In a world where, where difference is so cherished, difference just becomes the new kind of same. Somebody who's like us and can do what we want. But that's not the only part of the shepherd king. He belongs and understands to us and understands us. He's also, as these uh, elders who are now making an overture to a king they've been pretty chilly towards up until now, um, they acknowledge that he's uh, proven that this king and shepherd that they want is, uh, has established himself and borne confidence. It's interesting because they, of course, it's easy to diss Saul now that Saul's dead. Um, but now that Saul's dead, they, they say in very clear terms, in times past when Saul was king over us, you were actually king over us. The whole, the whole paradigm of Israel wanting a king was to defeat the Philistines, which David has already done. He's going to do more of. And so they understand that the shepherd king not only needs to be one of us, but he, he needs to have the right kind of dominion and authority and power to provide and protect for his people. And that's what, what David has, has done from the very beginning The Lord is with David. From the time of Goliath forward, David has been a victor and a protector. So this uh, ideal of the shepherd king is one of us. He's proven, um, and he also reigns. Listen to this language. The Lord said of you, you'll be shepherd of my people Israel. And then what does he say? This is where the two come together. And you will be prince 
over Israel. You'll be ruler. This is the fusion of the two. This is why you and I, we always need over the list of things that you just formulated at the beginning of this message, we always need a king who's a shepherd and a shepherd who's a king. He'll shepherd my people, he'll rule my people. The shepherding prince. What's remarkable about um, calling princes shepherds is that it embeds one of the principal realities of Christ's ministry among us. That, uh, that shepherding is like the minimum wage job still of the world and certainly was of the ancient Near East. It was a, it was a boy's work or a poor man's work. It was not considered upwardly mobile. Um, and often shepherds were caring for other people's property. So you can start to see how all of those things have become emblems and understandings of, of what Christ has really done for us, as we'll see briefly in, in just a moment. We were in sabbatical years ago in Scotland, and we, we went to this beautiful Duke's Gymongous Palace, and um, we decided that it was better to be a Duke because he had a really nice place, and not as many people want to kill dukes as want to kill kings. So that's a pro tip. If you ever get in line for royalty, max out at dukedom. Get a lot of the same perks, but not as many people after you. So we go down to this field, and they bring out um, a bunch of falcons and a bunch of birds of of prey. And including an indigo bald eagle, probably the most beautiful creature I've ever seen up close. Guess what color it is? Indigo. It's not a bald eagle. It's just the indigo eagle. The thing was about this big on a guy's arm. Beautiful indigo. And he talked about how the ancient art of falconry, which, by the way, was also practiced in China. Marco Polo did uh, falconry with royals in China. They, they learned to, ideally, to command a creature that at any moment could fly away from them. The, the, the art of rule. Now, granted, read a little history, and that lesson didn't sink into most of the rising kings, except our own. So David makes a covenant with them, and this is where we we start to see his dominion. The language is really clear. David makes a covenant with them. He initiates this sacred bond to secure their fealty, really. This is the ideal of the king. And then his kingdom, as we see, will last forever. Who recognizes the number 40 years in the Bible? Well, if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. But 40 is one of the big numbers in the Bible, three and seven. Are others, but 40 is the most in, expression of the most enduring, sustained um, experience and reality imaginable. It's a word of, of enduring completeness. And that's the next thing about, the, uh, about what it means to be uh, a shepherd king, that his kingdom is established. God doesn't strike him down. Uh, in discipline. Uh, his enemies don't kill him as Saul's untimely end, but he dies in his own time after his own purpose has been completed. 
This is what we all long for. This is what, what, we, all, what we all want. We're going to talk a little bit in just a little bit about, uh, about the um, taking of, the, uh, of Jerusalem. But, but before that, I, I want us to see a little bit about this actual shepherd that they really had. And so we've seen the ideal of the shepherd, and then we've, now we're going to see David the shepherd. And, and here's what I want us to know about David. David's been doing a great job. Can we all agree David has done a great job up to this point? This is the beginning of when the realism of the chronicler of, the, of Samuel's book starts to introduce us to the fact that we really do need a greater king and a greater shepherd than anyone we will have here. Listen to this. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to him, and then we saw the list. Now, be aware that this is injected by the author out of historical order. That's not usually a convention that the biblical writers always adhere to. So he's clearly making a point. And the point he's making is um, that David, as outstanding as he has been, is just like us. He's broken just like us. That we need a different, we need a different kind of king. We need somebody else. Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Bible and gives the law, says this about, about the king. One day they'll have a king, and in chapter 17 it says, He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away. The people who read this would have known about Deuteronomy. They would have known about Deuteronomy 17. By this time they would have known the rest of David's story, like many of us do, and they would have understood that David has a chink in his armor. That now here after Easter, when the true king was raised, we're realizing that David was not the true king. He was a shadow, an emblem, a picture, a broken mirror of the ultimate king. What's one of the things that commends the Bible to us is that its heroes are such losers. Adam, Loser. Noah, drunken loser. Moses, an angry man who killed people and struck rocks. Solomon, another king that started off very well, but didn't finish that way. Peter. I don't know the man, Peter said about Jesus in Jesus' trial. And then Paul, who murdered the church. This is the way it is. There's only one shepherd king. David's rise starts to fall. You know, his, the arc of David's journey goes from the flocks to the battlefield versus Goliath, his ascension to the royal court, the captain of the hosts of Israel. Um, he's a threat to the false king. Then he's an outlaw He's a righteous man of faith. He does all these things well. Who wants to be David up until Bathsheba? Really up until chapter 5. That's my goal. 
We've been talking about the good David. And then, even though it's a few verses ahead of the calamity that comes upon him, you will see soon that the, the next chapter, David messes up again. There's a, a preacher in the 1700s, uh, George Whitfield, a great preacher. And um, one of his, we would call him team members today, one of his uh, fellow leaders, a guy named John Senek, decided to leave Whitfield's movement and go to another movement that he saw as a more pure expression of the Christian faith called the Moravians. They're fine and beautiful expression. By the way, Moravians had a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week prayer service that lasted a century. But when John Senek was moving over the Moravians, George Whitfield wished him well and sent him with his blessings and wrote to him in a letter and said this, Remember, John, the best of men, do you know the rest of it? are men at best. And so David, this great king, was far from being a perfect king. So we need to briefly, for a moment, look at the true king. And then we'll we'll go back to... um, that's seen in Jerusalem, and then the battles. But let's pause and look at this true king, who of course is our true king. He's Christ, who we're told in the scriptures as to his human nature was a descendant of who? David. He was born of women. He's one of us. He was proven. Was he not proven? When was he proven? Well, over and over again in a life without sin. But also, ultimately, when he conquered death. Because death finally took someone that it had no right to. And he was proven. He was chosen to reign. The father said of the true shepherd king, This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And then he said, listen to him. And unlike the 40 years of David, unlike the 40 years of Moses in the desert, our king reigns for 40 forevers. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me and I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so we have this true king. You want from Christ like me, well, I should say, if you're like me, you you want Christ to be king when you think you need a king and you want him to be shepherd when you think you need a shepherd. And when you're dealing with other people, you want him to be a king to them when you think they need a king and a shepherd to them when you think they need a shepherd. But this shepherd king is high and exalted. He's far above you. 
He will not be one or the other. He will always and forever be both. He will always and forever be both. And what will it look like when he's both? Well, there's reflections and images in the last part of the account of this passage that uh, pre-reflect, we could say, what Christ would do. And the first is that he's going to establish Jerusalem. (laughs) David um, knows he's not stupid. He was stupid with the wives, you know, and the concubines, but he understands that that Jerusalem, the city of peace, is uh, at the border between Judah and Benjamin, so no one's really claimed it. He also knows it's, it's not been conquered yet, and he climbs up this water shaft, and, um, and he takes the city of Jerusalem and establishes it as his own, which has forever become a picture, Zion, a picture of where God dwells. You understand, I hope, that if you look later on in a book of the New Testament called Hebrews, um, in chapter 12, we're told, I'm going to get all grammar with you, grammar wonk. But we're told that we have come to heavenly Jerusalem. That's not, we're going there. You're there right now. You are the, if we might say, the lame and the blind that have entered into Jerusalem and even into the palace. But there's something else. This king is adored by part of the world and hated by another part of the world. And that's been the story of the Savior since he was with us on earth and ascended into heaven. Hiram, a Gentile, immediately recognizes David, the king, and what does he do? Just sends a bunch of stuff to him. Sends a bunch of tribute to him. He honors him. The riches of the nations first come to David, just as they've been promised throughout the prophets and Moses. And here's um, a delightful thing to contemplate this afternoon. You are the tribute of the nations. A bunch of Gentiles in here. There may be a Jewish person in here, but there's not one preaching to you. We are, those who come to him are the, from the islands that Isaiah talks about. We're bringing, we're the, the stonemasons and, and the carpenters bringing the, the riches of the nations to build a kingdom of God. But as we know, as Jesus said, the world hated me first. And large parts of the world still hate Jesus. They're opposed to him. And so he goes out, not like David with an army, but but like the son of David with the gospel, to convert the nations that are opposed to him and the peoples that are against him, just like David did with the Philistines in the valley. 
This is your king. This is your shepherd king. So right now, what do you need? For that list of things you have, do you need him to be a shepherd and care for you, or do you need him to be a king and command you? Well, if you understand who he is, you'll know that when the shepherd king commands you, he is also shepherding you. Every command of God is the benevolent direction of a shepherd. Find the one command about money or physical gratification or your spirit towards another person or your fears and anxieties. Find that one command that you resist the most harshly that is likely in your life Christ's most shepherd-like kingly kindness. It's what he does. It's who he is. You need both of them. What's it like to live? Well, you live with a sovereign shepherd and a kind king. That's who you live with. I'm the good shepherd, Jesus said famously in one of the gospels. I lay my life down for the sheep. You know what else Jesus said? He said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to him, how's it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? You have both. Stop dividing the person of Christ. Let him care for you. If you think you're strong and you're ready to do his will, but you're grumpy or anxious or sad or the people around you aren't so sure that you're as strong as you think you are, you need the sovereign shepherd. If you want to go your own way and do your own thing because you think no one, even heaven, understands how hard your life has been, and you're done leaving your happiness up to someone else, then you need a kind king. You always need the good shepherd and the great king. Always and forever. Jesus said to a man he healed, who didn't really know who he was, and then got in big trouble for getting healed and carrying his mat on the Sabbath, and then he he got interrogated by a bunch of people, and then he was later on, walking just through the town and Jesus walked by him and didn't even say who he was except he said you're you're the man that healed me didn't have any other information about Christ and Jesus looked right at him and what do you think the shepherd said to him at that moment sin no more or something worse will happen to you and then he walked away was he a shepherd or was he a king Well, he was a shepherd when he healed him. He was a king when he warned him. But the whole time he was a shepherd king, which is exactly what the man needed. It's exactly what I need. So how do you live? Well, you live understanding the kingdom that you're in. And then with me, let's stop choosing. We don't get to choose. You know, most our age, like most ages, we want to, don't you want a shepherd more than a king? Who wants someone telling them what to do? I want someone showing me where the food is. But I need a king. And when I need a king, because I'm feeling strong, when I don't want to look at what's broken in me, I need a shepherd. He'll give care and commands. 
Call us to conformity and give us compassion. Deal with our broken heart. And break our arrogant will. The legalist loves the king's laws. People who want to guard the gospel all the time love his promises. The Savior does all, wants all, gives all, demands all, and he's always caring for you when he does it. I'm going to now do something that I've done before but should never be done. I'm going to end with a quote. It's the first thing you learn in homiletics class is not to do this. You're about to see why. This is from Jonathan Edwards. Great 17th century pastor, a broken person, sinner, of course, but brilliant. Speaking of the passage in a later book in the Bible where Jesus is said to be a lion and a lamb, this is what he says. Christ, as he is God, is infinitely great and high above all. He is higher than the kings of the earth. For he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is higher than the heavens, higher than the highest angels of heaven. So great is he that all men, all kings and princes are as worms of dust before him. All nations are as the drop in the bucket and the light dust of the balance. Yea, the angels themselves are as nothing before him. And yet, he is one of infinite condescension. None are so low or inferior, but Christ's condescension is sufficient to take a gracious notice of them. He condescends not only to the angels, but he also condescends to such poor creatures as men. And that not only so as to take notice of princes and great men, but of those that are of the meanest rank and degree, the very poorest of the world, those that are commonly despised by their fellow creatures. Christ does not despise. He is the lion and the lamb. That is, he is the king and the shepherd. And you and I and the world, we always need both. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I ask you please to uh, exalt yourself as shepherd king. In Jesus' name, amen.